0: In the summer of 1977, Pitkin County Sheriff's Deputy Leon Murray was given a pretty unique assignment. Well, at the time, I'm sure it felt pretty boring, but 44 years later, knowing all that we know now, when he told me about it, I was on the edge of my seat. You see, Murray, along with another deputy, was often tasked with transporting an inmate of the Garfield County Jail to and from court in Aspen every day. The prisoner, you guessed it, Ted Bundy. Uh,
1: After uh, Bundy escaped from the Aspen courthouse, uh, the sheriff decided that his custody would be better secured by having him transferred daily from the Glenwood Springs um, Sheriff's Department. They had an allegedly solitary confinement cell Mm -hmm. within a larger cell block. So every day deputies were tasked, two deputies were tasked to drive to Glenwood Springs, pick up Mr. Bundy in the solitary confinement cell, bring him to Aspen, Colorado for a courtroom uh, proceedings. At the end of the courtroom proceedings, every afternoon we would drive him back down to Glenwood Springs.
0: This was after Bundy's June 7th escape from the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen. When awaiting his trial for the murder of a Michigan nurse vacationing outside of the resort town, he leapt from a second story window and fled into the mountains freaking out Aspen and eluding law enforcement for a week. The incident was a big deal, a huge deal. Some employees of the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office lost their jobs over it. And in August 1977, a memo went out to Aspen police officers. Guidelines for guarding Bundy, it said. Prior to going on patrol in your vehicle, always check your back seat, underneath your seats, etc., for beverage bottles or any other possible weapons. Search Bundy prior to placing him in your transport vehicle. Use maximum security handcuffs and ankle shackles. He moves only when you tell him to move. Don't let him deceive you, point. Be aware of what Bundy is doing at all times. He's very perceptive. Let him know you mean business. Don't stop your patrol car between the Garfield County Jail and the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office until it is necessary in normal traffic flow. In other words, don't stop at the 7-Eleven. Take away all opportunities for him to escape. Be sure that at least two deputies are with Bundy. Keep your weapons secure whenever you're within his reach. If Bundy is in the booking room, remove all potential weapons. Prior to entering court, check the drawers of the defendant's table. Check the chair that he sits in. Be his shadow. Don't even let him go to the bathroom.
1: I've dealt with, with some evil people and some bad people, and your interaction with them is you just know they're a bad person, you wouldn't have got that off a of dead. Really? Unless you knew what was behind him. He was an engaging, had a great smile, and just it, the words he used, you could tell he was intelligent. Um, that's how he got this all to happen. Mm-hmm. He, he, he could talk anybody into his close quarters.
0: He tried that with Leon, even.
1: When we drove him daily from Glenwood to Aspen, uh, he would ask me and whoever my partner was, uh, hey, Leon, uh, where does that road go? Hey, Leon, how deep is the snow up that road? Uh, what city's in that direction? And to me, it was obvious he's planning his next escape, and he's trying to get a, a better geographical fix on where he's at than how to get away. So I would just tell him, Ted shut up. You know, I'm not talking to you. Shut your mouth. And five minutes later, more questions, and Ted shut up. And at least to me it was he's he's planning his next escape.
0: I'm Aaron Udell with the Fort Collins, Coloradoan, and you're listening to Hunted, Inside Ted Bundy's Trail of Terror, Part 3. Aspen in the 70s sounds like an interesting place. It's a beautiful, very swanky ski town now, but it was even getting expensive 40 years ago. So much so that many law enforcement officers, like Leon, typically had to live in nearby towns and commute in. It's all they could afford. But while it was becoming this buzzing haven for the rich and famous, celebrities like John Denver, Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn. In the 1970s, it was caught somewhere in between its cowboy western roots as a mining town and its future, as an internationally known high-end ski resort destination. Because of that, there were still signs of its Wild West past. Here's Leon again, talking about when Ted Bundy was being kept in the Aspen Jail, before his June 1977 escape.
1: At the time that he was incarcerated in Aspen, we had the same jail cell um, that was in place back in the cowboy days, back in the 1800s. It was a, a steel box with uh, five steel cells within a larger steel box, and the way that the, uh, the main door was operated was with a, a huge key, like you, you see in some of the, the old-time cowboy movies or the old-time penitentiary movies. Mm-hmm a big brass key and then the way that the individual cells were unlocked, again going back to the old time movies, was a big mechanical lever that you could pull down and it would slide the the horizontal bars open by a series of mechanical means and uh, the bars would slide out of the the lock and you could open the door from the individual cell Mm -hmm. into a main area and then you would walk the prisoner from the main area out the main door and then out to the Mm -hmm. outside world.
0: But, like I said in the intro to this episode, Bundy's escape on June 7th changed everything. That memo was sent out to Aspen police officers. There was no excuse for cutting corners anymore. If you gave Ted Bundy an inch, he'd jump out of a second-story courthouse window. There was no taking chances, and law enforcement was pulling out all the stops. That's how Bundy ended up at the Garfield County Jail, a squat, brown brick building that was in downtown Glenwood Springs. Here's Leon again, describing that solitary confinement cell Bundy was kept in.
1: There was one, what was called a solitary confinement cell. And actually, uh, I I sent you a link, or I I think I sent you a a copy of that photograph of the cell. Okay. If we could find that, maybe I I could point out some things. That was a smaller steel box within the larger steel box, which was, which was the actual jail facility. That larger steel box was within the brick building of the Sheriff's Department. Mm-hmm. The steel box was allegedly solitary confinement because it was all steel. There was no windows to it. There was no uh, sunlight. There was no uh, bars. It was steel.
0: For months, Bundy sat in that cell as his trial for Campbell's murder approached. At that point, Chuck Leidner, Bundy's defense attorney, who you heard from in the last episode, could no longer represent him because he'd become a witness to his June 7th escape. So Bundy had other attorneys, and in late 1977, he filed a motion in Aspen to change the venue of the trial to Denver. That December, the judge granted his request, but instead, He changed the venue to Colorado Springs, a conservative and growing city about an hour's drive south of Denver. Bundy wouldn't be going to Colorado Springs though. Remember, give him an inch. Well, all it took was a 12 inch by 12 inch opening in the ceiling of his jail cell.
1: In the ceiling, there was a, and I believe it was either 15 by 15 or 18 by 18 inch light fixture Mm
0: -hmm. I just want to pop in and say according to interviews with Bundy afterward the fixture actually covered a 12 inch by 12 inch hole anyway
1: and as memory serves it was welded into the ceiling but the weld was loose and somehow Ted figured out that the weld was loose and he would not eat and he shrank himself down because he spent an extended period of time in that facility. And at nighttime, he was able to knock out that light fixture. He would get up on top of the steel box of his solitary confinement, which was next door to the other two steel boxes, and he would crawl around at nighttime trying to find a way out. The other prisoners in the adjacent cells heard something crawl around. They didn't know if it was an animal or if it was an escapee. Ted was in, the, and they brought that to the attention of, of the jailers, is, is what I was told. I don't know if that's reality, but mm-hmm. those are my memories. At that time, again, there was an adjacent apartment where a husband and wife team lived. The wife was the nurse for the jail facility, And the jailer and the male was a uh, deputy. Mm. They ran the jail at night times and on the weekends. Mm. The deputy and his wife's apartments, like a lot of homes, had a crawl space above the the ceiling. And a lot of homes have an opening in, in a closet or someplace where you can get up and store stuff. Ted was able to crawl around and find this opening into the jailer's apartments. And he could listen to their activities. And he learns that on weekends sometimes they would leave and go to the movies or go shopping or whatever.
0: And on the night of December 30th, 1977, Bundy crawled through the ceiling, busted into the jailer's apartment, changed into street clothes, and walked out the front door of the jail. In his own words later, Bundy would describe exiting the jail and being greeted by a beautiful Colorado snowy night. He'd spend most of that night looking for a car to steal. He ended up finding a little yellow 1963 MG Midget with studded tires, which would be good enough for the snowy mountain passes that awaited him. It took him about 40 to 50 miles before it conked out, and from there he hitchhiked, making it to Denver, where he got on a plane at the since-closed Stapleton Airport. Back in Glenwood Springs, by the time jail staff opened Bundy's cell door around noon on December 31st, and noticed that he was missing, Bundy was in Chicago. Soon, he'd be in Florida, the site of his final and most brutal attacks. Leon remembers hearing about the Glenwood escape. It was cold, he said, and he and his wife were taking their dog out for a run around a local reservoir.
1: It was December, and uh, the snow was deep, and we were going to take our Doberman and Let him run around in the snow and uh, I heard on the radio and was like, oh, heck, Mm -hmm. here we go again.
0: I'll be back right after this break. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably like me fascinated with decades-old crimes and unsolved Colorado mysteries. Putting episodes like this together, tracking people down, conducting interviews, digging through documents, it's fascinating. And it's one of my favorite parts about my job here at The Coloradoan. It's also a lot of work. Work that's made possible by Coloradoan subscribers. If you'd like to hear more true crime and local history storytelling, including things like this podcast, let my bosses know by getting a digital subscription to our work today. If you purchase one at coloradoin.com/podcastoffer, it'll link back to this podcast and show that our readers and listeners support and value work like this. The more support we get, the more chances I have to dig into cases that matter to you the more chances I'll have to unearth local mysteries and tell stories that deserve to be told. Getting a digital subscription to the Coloradoan not only supports the 17 journalists in this newsroom, it also unlocks a ton of neat local offerings. Subscribers also get access to a video, story, and archived photos specific to this very Bundy project. If you didn't catch that link earlier, it's coloradoan.com slash podcast offer. So consider subscribing today, and to all of our subscribers out there, thank you.
2: Yeah, the second time was interesting because he escaped from the Glenwood Springs or the Garfield County Jail, and I had just gotten home from from a trip with my family down to Arizona. That night, and he got out, you know, it was all over the news the next morning, that he was gone.
0: That's Chuck Leidner, who you met in the last episode. He was Ted Bundy's public defender for his first six months in Aspen in 1977.
2: As people would do, the conversations turned to, where do you think Ted is? What do you think Ted's doing? And I had no idea. I mean, my, my reaction was, if I was Ted, I'd be as far away from here as possible, in some country that doesn't have an extradition agreement. Um... But then when the killings in Florida took place, we were out to dinner with some people, and I I said, you know, I'll bet you that Ted Bundy's in Florida. Because it just smelled of him.
0: After leaving Colorado and flying to Chicago, Ted Bundy hopped a train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he sat in a college bar and watched the 1978 Rose Bowl on TV. From there, he stole a car and drove to Atlanta. Then he got on a bus to Tallahassee, home of Florida State University. A week later, early in the morning of January 15th, 1978, Bundy slipped into the back door of the college's Chi Omega sorority house. Inside, he bludgeoned 21-year-old Margaret Bowman with a piece of firewood as she slept in her bed. Then, he strangled her with a pair of pantyhose. He entered another bedroom next, That of 20-year-old Lisa Levy. He beat her unconscious, strangled her, bit her, sexually assaulted her. And he kept going. The next bedroom over, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, leaving her with a broken jaw and lacerations. Karen Chandler also suffered a broken jaw, lost teeth, a concussion, and a crushed finger. The attacks spanned a total of 15 minutes, and resulted in the deaths of Bowman and Levy. Bundy vanished from the scene, and just down the street, broke into the basement apartment of another Florida State student, a dancer named Cheryl Thomas. He dislocated her shoulder, broke her jaw, and cracked her skull, but she survived.
3: What you see at Kyle Omega was nothing more than a frenzy. It's an absolute frenzy. There's no abduction but taking her somewhere else. There's no, no, he, he, he did rape one of them, okay? But this was just about killing as many women as he could kill at one
0: time. That's Kevin Sullivan. You might remember him from the first episode. He's written four books on Bundy.
3: Now, by the time he got to Florida, he was not, he was not the refined killer of 1974, 75, back in 74, 75, this handsome young man would draw women to him like a magnet. By the time he gets to Flora, you know, he goes in Sherrod's, the disco, which is across from Chi Omega, and he's no longer drawing women to him. He's repelling them.
0: He's talking about a dance club and college bar just 30 feet from the Chi Omega sorority house. Apparently, Bundy went there hours before his Tallahassee attacks.
3: They're telling the police later, this guy was creepy, his eyes were weird. There was like a repulsion coming from him. He was no longer that same refined killer, and I say in the book, well, you know, he couldn't get the conscious woman to go from him, so he's going to attack the unconscious women at Kyle Omega.
0: Three weeks after the Tallahassee attacks, Bundy drove to Jacksonville, Florida and approached a 14-year-old girl the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives, but he was run off by her older brother. Later that afternoon, he drove west to Lake City, Florida. There, you see another aberration in his usual pattern. He abducts and kills his final known victim and one of his youngest, a 12-year-old named Kimberly Leach. Almost two months later, her body is found in a shed 35 miles away. On February 15, 1978, a month after his Tallahassee attacks and a few days after the Leach murder, Bundy is spotted by a police officer in Pensacola, Florida. He's driving suspiciously and is pulled over. After being told he was under arrest, Bundy tried to take off running, but the officer chased and tackled him. Soon, he was sitting in the Pensacola Police Department. After a few days of not cooperating, He told investigator Norman Chapman his name. And Ted Bundy's 1970s murder spree was over.
4: Um, And again, he's caught not because of amazing detective work, but he's caught because he's driving a stolen VW uh, and he's driving erratically.
0: That's Joe Berlinger. I spoke to him in the first episode. Remember, he's Hollywood's Bundy guy at the moment. He recently directed and produced a docu-series about him for Netflix titled Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. He also directed a Bundy film titled Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, which stars Zac Efron and Lily Collins, and comes out this year.
4: And In fact, each time Bundy was captured, Utah, Colorado, and in Pensacola, Florida, it wasn't because they tracked him down through detective work. Each time it was because he was a bad driver driving a stolen vehicle. And that to me is the most chilling thing about the whole Bundy tale is that, you know, had he been a better driver, uh, he might never have been caught.
0: Police were soon able to connect Bundy to his Tallahassee attacks, and he was arrested for the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman. The trial started in June 1979.
4: Yesterday afternoon in Miami, a jury heard the final arguments in the case against Theodore Bundy, who was accused of murdering two young ladies in a Florida State University sorority house in 1978. The verdict is now in, and here's Diane Wildman.
0: After six and a half hours of deliberation, the jury had a verdict. 32-year-old Theodore Bundy remained composed as he listened.
4: Theodore, Theodore, Theodore Robert Bundy, as to count two of the indictment, in the first degree upon one Margaret Bowman, guilty as charged. Guilty of first-degree murder in the
0: strangling deaths of two Florida State University sorority sisters 19 months ago. Guilty of the attempted murder of three other women students the same night. The jury had heard 49 prosecution witnesses during the four-and-a-half-week trial, including one who said she saw Bundy at the sorority house the night of the killings. Months after he was found guilty in the Chi Omega trial, Bundy was tried and found guilty for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. He maintained his innocence in both the leech trial and the Chi Omega trial. His crimes ultimately netted him three death sentences. The third death sentence, the one for Kimberly Leach, was the one carried out nine years after his sentencing, on January 24th 1989.
4: You know, not only did he deny his crimes while they were happening, but he denied his crimes upon arrest. During his trial, he represented himself, which was bizarre enough, um, denied his crimes all through his appeals process, because usually, uh, you know, serial killers, once they're caught, they just, you know, they spill their guts and talk about all this stuff. But he uniquely kind of, you know, denied it all the way until a few days before his execution in 89. Um, And he only started confessing because he thought it was a way to extend his life by becoming useful in that he could dole out information.
0: In Florida, a convicted serial killer is continuing his string of 11th-hour confessions. As NBC's Ed Rabel reports, Ted Bundy is apparently trying to delay his execution scheduled for the electric chair tomorrow.
3: That Theodore Bundy has confessed to some of the dozens of murders he is suspected of committing is bringing relief to the families and friends of the victims. Nancy Nottingham was a co-worker of Julie Cunningham, a Vail, Colorado ski shop employee Bundy admitted killing.
0: Personally, I would feel relief. I mean, you would know now that it's over and that she's not lost somewhere looking for help. It's kind of morbid, but Sullivan referred to it as bones for time. Bundy was trying to buy himself more time by finally confessing to his dozens of murders across six states. In Colorado, investigator Mike Fisher got a call from Bundy one day.
3: And he said, uh, Mike, he said, uh, I'm gonna, you know, I'd like to, he said he's under some kind of spiritual change. I, I don't buy it myself, but he, he said he had, and he said that he wanted to clear some things up for the families. And Mike Fisher, he's <laughs> just this way. He said, listen, he said, he said, Theodore, and he always called him Theodore. He never called him Ted. He said, Theodore, I am not going to come to Florida and hear some kind of BS from you. That, or you talking to me in the third person? The only way I'm going to come to Florida is if you confess yourself to me what you've done. He said, "I'll do it, Mike. I'll do it." So Fisher goes down there, Stark, Florida, and goes to the prison. And he and he, you know, Bundy's exceedingly exhausted. He's done these round-the-clock things, and he's, you know, he's he's upset about him. Uh, he, he's about ready to be executed, and on top of that, he's he's exhausted. And so he goes through and he he, he talks about the uh, Julie uh, Cunningham murder and he talks about uh, the Karen Campbell murder. And uh, they get information on that. And suddenly he's too tired to talk about the Denise Oliverson murder. And Mike Fisher says, look, you are not fulfilling your end of the bargain. And Bundy said, look, I'll get back with you about that, I promise. And he did. On the way to his execution, after he had his head shaved, He asked the warden, he said, there's a couple more things I'd like to confess to. Could you get a tape recorder? And the warden put him in a room, got him a tape recorder, and he confessed to two additional murders. The one he was absolutely going to get back with Fisher on, which is the the Denise Oliveson murder. And then he also confirmed that he had murdered 15-year-old Susan Curtis out of Utah.
0: Though he was never tried for any of his Colorado murders or abductions, Bundy had finally confessed to murdering Karen Campbell on January 12, 1975, Julie Cunningham on March fifteenth, and Denise Oliverson on April sixth. In Julie Cunningham's case, Bundy told Fisher he had spotted her while walking through Vail. Using crutches as a trick, he asked her to help him carry his ski boots to his car. When she did, he clubbed her over the head and handcuffed her. Then he drove her to a remote area in Rifle, Colorado, raped her, taunted her, and killed her. He revisited her body there weeks later, but it's never been found by authorities. In the Oliverson case, Bundy said he dumped her somewhere in the Colorado River. She's never been found either. But he never did confess in the case of Shelley Robertson, the young woman who went missing while hitchhiking in Denver, who was found a few weeks later in an old mine. On Tuesday, January 24th, 1989, Ted Bundy was executed by electric chair for the 1978 murder of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach in Florida. Reporters lined up outside the prison, interviewing witnesses of the execution. People gathered to both protest and cheer. Like during his trial in Aspen, it was almost a circus-like atmosphere, with people holding up signs that read, Tuesday is Friday, F.R.Y. Day, and selling t-shirts. Burn, Bundy, burn, they read. 30 years after his execution, it's still unknown how many people Bundy killed. In interviews during his 11th Hour Confessions, he alluded to the exact number being over a 100. Officially, 30 women died at his hands between 1974 and 1978. I can't say for sure what impact Ted Bundy's heinous crimes had on our country, on the world even. They captivated people, and we're still talking about them, and him, even 30 years after his death.
3: When people learn this stuff, and they say, wait a minute, a college graduate, law student, rising star in the Republican Party, influential friends, seeming like a nice guy, handsome young man, yeah, Yeah, good-looking guy, come on. He can't be doing this, but he was doing it. And that's where the disconnect occurs.
0: Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the takeaway. Things don't always make sense. Just like how Berlinger said earlier in this podcast, you don't always really know the person next to you. I'm Aaron Udell. And you just listened to the third and final episode of Hunted, a special podcast series produced by the Fort Collins, Coloradoan, here in Fort Collins, Colorado. This isn't the end, though. In February, we'll be launching a story, a gallery of archive photos, a video, and even a column written by yours truly, with personal insights on what it was like working on this project. That will all be on Coloradoan.com, so be sure to check everything out. And like I said before, if you value work like this and want to see or hear more like it, please consider buying a digital subscription at coloradoin.com slash podcast offer. Thanks guys.